Well, good morning. My name is John Allen, and welcome to Risen Church. Um, anybody notice that it is hot outside? It is. It is hot. It is not warm. It is an oven out there. Like, welcome to Southern Virginia in the summer. Um, I, I grew up actually in North Carolina, which it is like sweltering down there. Um, I, I, I do love summertime, but sometimes I feel like... <laughs> Like, when it's winter, I'm like, I can't wait for the summer. And then when summer gets here, I'm like, it's hot. Like, it's not quite as, like, satisfying as you think it's going to be, right? Like, it, when it's, when it's uh, summertime right now, it's like almost like that oppressive heat that's just kind of bearing down on you. Like, you think, oh, the sun is out. I'm going to go to the beach. It's going to be great. And then you step outside, and you're like, oh, Right? Like, you're like, i got to change my shirt. This is crazy. Um, and then, you know, you're like waiting for fall to come. And then when fall gets there, you're like, well, I can't wait for Christmas to get here. And then when Christmas comes, you're like, it's so cold. I can't wait for spring. And then when spring comes, you're like, you know, it's not, the water's still kind of cold. It's not like what I want it to be. And then you're like, well, I can't wait for summer to get here. And then summer comes and you're like, here we are. And life can be this perpetual cycle of unsatisfaction in this world. Like you have this sense that you're going to have this desire that's fulfilled, but somehow things just feel just out of reach, right? Um, I, I, I think that uh, this is in some ways just how it is in this fallen world. We get glimpses of it, but true satisfaction comes through Christ alone, and I want to talk about what that means um, this morning. So we're going to continue in our series through the book of Revelation this morning called Victory Unveiled, and we're going to be in chapter 18, verse 1 through 8. So that's going to be our main um, passage this morning. But before we go there, I want to set up our passage in Revelation 18 with an encounter between Jesus and a very unsatisfied Samaritan woman from the book of John, chapter 4. All right? So, this is known as the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. Many of you are familiar with this story. Um, maybe you're not, and welcome, you're about to be. So, Jesus and his disciples are traveling through a Samaritan village, and his disciples go into town to get some lunch, right? And so, it's in the middle of the day, and uh, it's really hot. Like, it's that oppressive heat. It's that, like, well... Middle Eastern heat, okay? And so it's really hot. They've been traveling. Jesus is tired. And so while they go to get some food, he stops to rest for a while at a famous well that was apparently dug by the patriarch Jacob. And it was that he did this like long before. Um, and so it's called Jacob's Well. While he's there, a Samaritan woman shows up to get some water. Now, again, it's in the heat of the day, and she's alone. The time to get water would have been in the early morning, in the cool of the day, or in the evening when it was not so hot, which means that she's coming in the heat of the day because she's trying to avoid people. So she shows up, and there's this Jewish man sitting by the well. It might have even felt like he was sitting there waiting for her. So there's this tension, though, between uh, the Samaritans and the Jews that I want to point out here. Like, the Samaritans were known as half-breeds in this day because although they descended from the tribes of Israel, like the Jews, they had forsaken God's command not to intermarry with Gentiles. So long before this, 
God had set the Jewish people apart and said, you are to be my people and you are to know me and, and, and follow my ways, right? And he said, don't intermarry with those that don't know the Lord. But they, hundred years of years before this, did intermarry. Because before this took place, hundreds of years before, that many of the Israelites, especially many of the men, had been taken into captivity in Babylon. And instead of being faithful until they returned, they, the Samaritans instead did their own thing and intermarried with people who did not know the Lord. That's a bad idea. It's still a bad idea. That's another sermon. By doing so, they were unfaithful to their true husband, who was God himself, okay? And so, uh, when the Israelites returned to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, they discovered that the Samaritans had been unfaithful. The Samaritans had even erected their own temple on their own mountain to do their own little religious thing that suited their own preferences. And so, this... These people had gone their own way to find satisfaction rather than trust in the Lord. And so the Samaritans were seen by the Jews as unfaithful outcasts and an adulterous, wayward people. That's very important to understand in this context because it makes this encounter with Jesus and this woman all the more awkward, right? Because she's just trying to get some water from this well. She's already trying to avoid people. Like, she's just hoping nobody's going to be there. And then she comes in the heat of the day, but there's this guy who is sitting at the well, and he's not any ordinary guy, right? Her thirst would have been overwhelming. It's her thirst for water that draws her, even though as she approached, she would have probably seen him from a distance sitting beside Jacob's well. Now, she probably didn't realize that this was God himself in the flesh. But for this woman, it still would have been an uncomfortable scenario, to say the least, because this was a Jewish man. So I wonder what she was thinking, right, like as she's approaching. She probably saw him, and then she considers maybe like, she, maybe she came, came around the corner, and she just kind of pauses. She's like, oh, I didn't think anybody was going to be here. And then maybe she's thinking, I should turn around. Maybe I'll just wait for him to leave. But now she's got to contend with the fact that if she waits for him to leave, you know, she might run into the people that she was trying to avoid to start with, right? Those women might start showing up. And he probably didn't look like he was going anywhere. And as we know, Jesus is really patient. Amen? Also, she's thirsty. Besides, this Jewish man would have more than likely just ignored her, right? I mean, that was sort of the tradition of the time. Like, she could expect some looks of condemnation from him, but she needed water, and by now, those looks of condemnation, she'd probably gotten used to. So she had all these expectations about who Jesus was and what he would do and how he would be, but she gathers her courage, and she approaches the well. Attention in her heart would have been heavy as she approached God Almighty in the flesh, even though she didn't know who he was. The shame in her heart would have been tangible, even though she didn't know that this man was God. The tension's still there. And you can imagine, though, like I just get a picture. Like I can almost see that knowing smile on Christ's face as his lost daughter is approaching. And just as she draws a jar of water from the well, 
Jesus breaks the silence and he asks her for a drink. John 4, 9. Look with me there. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Like you can hear, almost hear the shame in this. The Jews would have considered this woman unclean, so asking to share water from her jar would have been pretty radical. That would have been a shock, to say the least. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, living water is a reference here to fresh spring water, like living water that's running, right? But it's also a reference to the spirit of the living God in the Old Testament. It sounds a lot like the way the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2 verse 13 says, uh, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Unsatisfying cisterns. Or as you two put it, she still hasn't found what she's looking for. Right? Jesus knew all about her vain search for satisfaction. But at this point, she hasn't realized that the only one who can truly satisfy her is right in front of her. She's expecting condemnation and rejection from this man. Let's keep going. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There's so much in here. But I, I, I love this part, right? Like at this point, you'd expect her to be like, okay, crazy man. Like, maybe you do need some water. Like, maybe you need to lie down a little bit, right? But there must have been something about the way that he said it, maybe a look in his eye or probably just the quickening of the Holy Spirit in her heart. Because, verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water because she doesn't want to come there. She doesn't like coming to that well. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. And there it is. For a moment, this woman's shame had been tucked away by her intrigue of this man. In this conversation, she had felt like a dignified human. He treated her almost as though she wasn't a shameful outcast. But Jesus didn't let her shame go underground to fester. He goes right after it. Watch this. Verse 17. The woman answered him. She's honest. I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now we know why she's avoiding all the other women. She's ashamed. This is why she comes in the heat of the day. This is why she's avoiding people. She is trying to isolate herself. There's so much going on in this lady. 
But here she's been found out. And yet he's not rejecting her. The same man desiring to share her water isn't blind to her shame. He sees her, but he hasn't scorned her. Not only that, he's offering her eternal life. And Jesus leaves her no room for second-guessing the offer. Like, there's no room to delegitimize what he's presenting to her. Like, she can't think, well, if he only knew how wretched I am, he wouldn't talk to me. If he only knew what I've done, he wouldn't offer me this amazing gift. If he only knew me, he would reject me. He gives her no room to do that. You know why? He sees her. He sees her and he knows. His offer of life and love is not blind. See, Jesus has come to grips with your sin. The question is, have you? Jesus sees you. He knows you. It's not hidden. He's come to grips with our fallenness. He gets it. He feels the weight of it. Do you? Or are you just sweeping it under the rug? Verse 20. She continues saying, our fa- verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So here she is trying to justify why she's not worthy. Do you see this? Here she is literally calling attention to the mountains between them. I want you to see this. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, don't miss the weight of that statement and how confrontational it actually is. Jesus doesn't avoid the truth. Salvation does, in fact, come through the Jews, not the Samaritans. He's going after her entire worldview. He doesn't skirt around it. He goes directly after it, and yet he does it with so much love and acceptance and grace. He makes it clear that her entire Samaritan society is, in fact, an adulterous and unfaithful people, just like she is personally. He doesn't ignore the mountain between them, but then he offers her the greatest news of all. Like, don't miss the weight of that statement. And he says, verse 23, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, Is this you? Do you desire to worship the Father in spirit and in truth? Do you thirst for the living God? Not some religious institution, not some paradigm of life that is going to fit your society or what the world's idea of God is and how you should act. Do you want to be loved and love God Almighty? Do you want to worship him in spirit and in truth? If so, he's provided a way. The God who moves the mountains of separation has come. He's asking, do you thirst for the living God? And her response here is perfect. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, 
he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Look, this is the faith that matters. Like, I wish that I could see just the look on Jesus' face when she says this. Right? He is the Christ. And he's come. She's saying, when he comes, I haven't figured out, is it this mountain, is it that mountain? I don't know how this all works. I've got all these different reasons for being separated from you. Your God, I'm not, I don't understand what's going on. I'm ashamed. And then she's going, but the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to tell us all things. He's going to reveal all things. He's going to work it all out. Her faith is in the Christ. You see this? And then verse 26, look at this. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, look, the English doesn't draw this out. Like, I want you to see, this is like one of the most, this is like one of the biggest mic drop moments in the Bible, okay? Because what he's saying here, the English doesn't draw it out because he, what he's actually saying here is that he is the great I am. That's how he's presenting this. He's saying to her, I am. He reveals himself to the Samaritan woman with the same language that God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush. As the great I am. So I want to say that the flood of revelation and hope and faith would have burst into this woman's heart and mind in a way that's almost unimaginable to us. But if you are in Christ, it's not unimaginable to you because you've experienced this. This revelation, this flood of hope and goodness it's that moment like you you you, I hope you know exactly what that's like and if you don't I don't want you to leave here until you do like it's that moment when you realize that it's really him look he's real and he's the answer to all your hopes and dreams and all the promises of God are wrapped up in this one all-sufficient king and savior this is who Jesus is this is the moment that she's just hit with it and she's overwhelmed and just then the disciples come back and this woman leaves her water jar and goes off to tell others about Jesus like I think about that remember how thirsty she was remember the the whole thing that she's doing is she's coming to this well because she's thirsty she's that's what drew her now she's got the water and she doesn't even care the revelation of Jesus has totally flipped the script on this one flip listen to me flipped the script on this woman, right? It's just completely upside down. Suddenly, this super thirsty woman who was trying to avoid everybody now leaves her jar of water to go find all the people that she was trying to avoid so she can introduce them to Jesus. And she does. And then they meet Jesus, and then they believe. Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. It's amazing. And that was my introduction. <clears throat> so, last week we got a powerful message from the, about the gentleness of Jesus in Matthew 12 from my friend, Pastor Rich Bowman. And he crushed it. It was so good. Anybody here for that? So it, it was, I, I loved it. It was so good. And, and it's easy to read passages like the one in Matthew 12 from last week or this one here about the woman at the well and think that somehow these descriptions of Jesus contradict the Jesus described in Revelation. As though he's gentle and lowly here, but the Revelation Jesus is like judgmental and condemning and mean. Right? 
But I hope that it's been clear throughout this series that nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the same guy who wrote the account of Jesus and the woman at the well is the same guy who wrote Revelation. It's the Apostle John. And so Revelation 18, verse 1 through 8, is where we're going to be this morning. Um, and it gives us a vision of the judgment and the fall of Babylon the Great, which is presented to us in chapter 17 as an unfaithful prostitute. In other words, Babylon the Great is presented in Revelation as the society of all humanity who has turned away from their faithful husband, who is the Lord himself. Looking for satisfaction elsewhere like an unfaithful adulteress. Babylon the Great, or the Great Prostitute, represents any and all of human society who have turned away from God and also in turn seduce others into their waywardness. We saw all of this in chapter 17. It's the spirit behind literal ancient Babylon. It was the spirit behind unfaithful Rome and unfaithful Jerusalem and any and all unfaithful societies throughout history. It's the spirit of the age that was at work in the sons of disobedience in the first century when Revelation was written, and it continues to be at work in the sons of disobedience in the world today in the 21st century. So this morning, Revelation 18, verse 1 through 8, presents us with a vision, and in that vision, we hear two authoritative voices. It's going to be a sort of like framework for this passage. Two voices. The first declares the downfall of Babylon the Great and gives us even more detail into why she deserves this judgment. And then the second voice is a call to God's people to come out of her. All right? And so I want you to see this morning that the voice that's calling us out of this prostitute city or society is the very voice the very same voice of the one who encountered the Samaritan woman in the heat of the day in truth and in love. It's the same voice. The same one that calls that woman out of her mess and into living water and eternal life is the same one that's speaking here in Revelation 18. I don't want you to miss that. You see, it could be very easy to read this passage and only hear judgment and shame, especially if you are feeling a whole lot of judgment and shame in your life, which is why I want you to see this passage and hear his voice with the lens of the woman at the well. Because this passage isn't just a vision about what we're called to come out of, it's a vision of the one that we're called to come unto. Okay? Because yes, it's important to see that this world is unsatisfying. It's important that you see how counterfeit the things of this world are. Yes, we need a revelation of our own unfaithfulness and the unfaithfulness of the entire society that we live in. You need to see that. You need to get that. But if that's all you get from this message, then you're just going to be left frustrated, unsatisfied, and ashamed. If that's all you hear is condemnation, then guess what? You're just going to be left condemned. And that's not what Jesus came to do. He came to set us free from all that. Because this morning, Jesus is calling us to come out of all of that and to come to him. So let's walk through these eight verses in Revelation 18, and then we're going to drop back and bring some practical application. Ultimately, here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. Jesus Christ is the only all-satisfying wellspring of life. So drink in the love of God in Christ and come out of the counterfeit. Jesus Christ is the only all-satisfying wellspring of life, so drink in the love of God in Christ and come out of the counterfeit. Revelation 18, 
Verse 1 says this. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority and the earth, sorry, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So let's stop here. The first mighty voice here declares the fall of Babylon, and then it explains why she's fallen. So it says that she's become a dwelling place for demons, unclean spirits, unclean birds, and detestable beasts. So all that language is speaking to different varieties of demonic imagery that's referenced in the Old Testament. Like passages like Isaiah 34 that used they use things like night birds, like, like screeching owls and frightening nocturnal beasts like prowling hyenas. They use them as, as imagery to describe the presence of demonic spirits. It was a way of pulling back the physical veil so you understand what's actually going on and how dangerous the demonic realm actually is. And so that's what it's being alluding to here. So the first reason she's fallen is because there's no resistance in her, in this society, to the demonic. Right? We know that if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. But they don't resist. In fact, this society gives rest and habitation to the demonic. That's the description of Babylon the Great here. That which is wicked thrives in her. And it thrives precisely because of her sexual immorality. Again, look at verse 3. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So again, we talked about this a a few weeks ago. Um, Sexual immorality here isn't just a reference to literal sexual immorality, although that would definitely be included in the category, okay? Okay. But what it's talking about here is people's unfaithfulness to the Lord in general in order to attain security, wealth, comfort, or influence. In other words, this is where we're designed in this covenant relationship with God and we turn away to things that are not God to find our affirmation, our security, our strength, our status, our, our comfort, all of these things. We look to even good things to become God things, right? And so that is what idolatry is. And so uses the metaphor of sexual immorality or cheating literally on God, an unfaithfulness. That's the picture. So it talks specifically here about economic gain as a result of unfaithfulness to God, right? This is that the, these are a wayward people who have prostituted themselves to the things of this world. That is the whore Babylon. That's the society that we're talking about here. So it says, merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now this doesn't, again, a quick note here that it doesn't mean that all money is evil or if you are wealthy, then you are wicked. It's not saying that. In fact, the Bible says that it's the love of money that is evil, right? That the love of money is actually the root of all evil is what it says. And so, It's what you're doing with that money. It's that you're looking to that luxurious living as your functional savior and God. 
That's what it's talking about here. One commentator put it like this. A man named Gregory Beale said, Economic security would be removed from Babylon's subjects if they did not cooperate with her idolatry. Such security is too great a temptation to resist. Therefore, the verb drink refers to the willingness of society in the Roman Empire to commit itself to idolatry in order to maintain economic security. Once one imbibes or indulges, the intoxicating influence removes all desire to resist Babylon's destructive influence, blinds one to Babylon's own ultimate insecurity and to God as the source of real security and numbs one against any fear of coming judgment. Psalm 14.1 put it like this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So instead of pointing the nations toward the Lord, this is a society who seduces them away from them or seduces them away from him for their own vanity and their own self-worship. You guys still with me? Verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has, been, has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So this second voice comes and speaks directly to God's people. And it says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and share in her plagues. So what does that mean? What does is, what is, what is come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and share in her plagues? Well, it means what it says it means, right? And yet, you know, does, does that mean that if we live in a society dominated by unfaithfulness to God, that we should leave? That we should pack up and move? Is that what he's saying? Like, does that mean that if we live in a culture where God's good design is mocked and twisted? Where the sacredness of covenant marriage is despised? If we live in a society that mocks faithfulness, scoffs at holiness, and outright rejects righteousness, should we leave? Like, if we live where it's more and more becoming acceptable and even supported to advocate for the perverse and unrepentant, yet murder the unborn and innocent. A society that calls good evil and evil good, should we pack up and take off? Should we come out of her? Ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to be a prophet to see that the world we live in is currently trending more and more in that direction. So what should we do? What is this passage telling us to do? Pack up and move? Where would we go? Canada? Nope. Not Canada. Right? How about Texas? <laughs> Florida, maybe? Right? 
But before you get carried away, I don't want you to, like, put your boots back up, up right? Like, let's step back a second. Remember, this was written to a specific people in a specific time at a specific place, which means that it had a specific meaning. And it can't mean to us what it couldn't have meant to them then, okay? So before we break out the cowboy boots and sunscreen, let's drop back and ask what this would have meant to the first century church. What did come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, actually mean to them? Was this letter telling them to, in the first century, leave the Roman Empire? Well, yes and no. Again, when things get confusing in Scripture, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. So, look with me at John chapter 17, verse 14 through 21. This is known as Christ's high priestly prayer. It's a prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father over his disciples and actually over all of you as well. And in it, he prays that we would be in the world, but not of the world. Look at verse 14. It says this. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, which means set them apart. Say sanctify. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. Your word is truth. So not the modern day conceptions of truth, not the fickle indulgences of suburban outrage, but truth that's established upon the word of God. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Come out of her, my people. Be set apart. And here's the thing. You can leave Babylon. You can leave Rome. You can leave Jerusalem. You can head for the new world like the Puritans did. Like, praise God they did. That's how I got here. Right? But on this side of heaven, you cannot totally escape the spirit of the age. No matter where you go. The only way to really come out of her is to come to Jesus. To be set apart, to be sanctified in the truth, and to wage war upon the darkness by being the light. This is what the early church who received this letter did so well, even in the midst of suffering and persecution. But Jesus continued his prayer. Listen to this. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's talking about you. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He's talking about you, and he's talking about me, and he's talking about his local churches throughout the generations. That we're the ones who believed through their testimony. He's praying for you here. He's saying that it's our unity in the gospel of grace that's our most effective tool of witness to the world. This is what it says. 
that we are set apart from the cultures of this world to establish a new culture, a new community, a community that's founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, a people who have recognized that we were an unfaithful people of an unfaithful society saved by the grace of a faithful God. This is the gospel. This is the, this is the good news that God became a man He lived the life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserve to die, and he conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way to eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die. It starts now through the infilling and indwelling of his spirit. It's a people who are filled with his spirit and united for his glory and his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. In Virginia Beach as it is in heaven, that his will is done and his kingdom comes in risen church as it is in heaven, in your families as it is in heaven, in your workplaces, in our city, in our neighborhoods as it is in heaven. Jesus said that this gospel community would be the primary tool of witness to the lost world. Not that track that you dropped in your coworker's cereal. That's not the primary witness to a lost world. That's not the thing that says Jesus is Lord. You drop it in there. You're like, okay, bye. Don't ask me any questions. It's the invitation to come and be known and be introduced to the king of kings. Now, that doesn't mean that if impending doom is on its way that you shouldn't flee the literal city. Okay? In fact, if you're a Christian living in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and Rome is coming at you with an unavoidable hammer, then this passage means get your kids and get out. Does that make sense? Because the Romans were about to do exactly what Jesus said would happen in 70 AD, which was the utter devastation of the temple in Jerusalem. So the Christians knew that. The Christians knew what Jesus was saying, and they, when Rome was coming, they were like, we've got no allegiance, but you alone, we're headed for the hills. And they destroyed everything. And everyone who stayed, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Like so much of Revelation, this is a wake-up call to the church. Now, there's a tendency here to ask if this is talking about salvation or not. Maybe some of you are thinking that here even as, we're, as I'm preaching it. After all, he's talking to the church, and he's calling them his people but I think that's the wrong question to ask here. Because the heart behind that question has more to do with what Christians can get away with and still be Christian, which misses the point of this passage entirely. Like that's the symptom of a heart that's captivated by the world and irritated by the things of God. That's the heart that's oriented towards the world and feels like Jesus is holding them back and stifling them. Like many people call themselves Christians and live like this. You see, when your heart is oriented towards the world, God becomes either the genie to grant your every worldly wish or the bad guy who won't let you have what you really want. That's just dead religion. Whether it's prosperity gospel religion or dry, rules-oriented, legalistic religion. But it's not Christianity. And it preaches a false gospel because it's not pointing to the goodness and glory and grace of a very good and holy king and savior. What we have here in Revelation 18 is a call to abundant life. 
It's a call to turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. That's what we see here. Colossians 3, verse 1 says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If then you've been raised with Christ, if you are identified as a child of the king, if you've received what he did for you at the cross and resurrection, if your identity as is as one who is risen in Christ, hello, risen church, if that's who you are, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So he's speaking to those who have received their identity as recipients of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Those whose sinful nature was crucified and buried with him, which means that your true identity is one risen in Christ. And so what follows here is a call to come out of the world. It's, a, it's a, literally what it looks like to be um, to set your eyes on Jesus. That's what he's saying. He says, verse 2, look, set your minds on things that are above. He says it again. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the motivation here is the goodness of God. He is abundant life. He is your life, if. You believe he is the Lord. If you believe he is who he says he is, which he is, then this is our motivation. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. These things used to define you. You hear this? These things used to identify you. These things used to be how you were and who you were, but not anymore. That's not who you are. Risen church, listen to me. If you, you, we often can get caught up labeling each other by our sin. You're so covetousness. I don't know how many people say that. You're, you're so greedy, right? <laughs> you're so covetousness. Um, I don't even know what that means. You, you're, you're always complaining. You're such a jerk. You're just cursing each other. If you're in Christ, that's a lie. That's not who you are. Ladies and gentlemen, stop cursing one another. If you're in Christ, that's not who you are. If you're in Christ and you're a brother or a sister or a spouse, come on, then let's speak to who you are in Christ because that's who you actually are. That's who your identity is. You're identified by your Savior, not your sinful struggle. Okay? This is so important. These things used to define you. These things used to be how you are. But that doesn't mean that, that, that you won't struggle with them. But it means that they don't have to define you. And it means that if you do have that struggle, those things are trying to seduce you into believing that that is who you are. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, 
It's not who you are. That thing's nailed to the cross. You've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self because you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And that which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is who you really are. Verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, black, white, red, yellow, but all, Christ is all and in all. He is our identity. So all of that describes the things that are passing away. Who are we, though, in Christ? Who is he fashioning us into? What is our true identity that sets us apart? from the labels and identities that this world would put on you. Verse 12, I love this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Say chosen, holy, and beloved. Chosen, holy, and beloved. Woo! Put on. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must, must, say must, forgive, say forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It doesn't say, listen, it doesn't say the church has to be perfect in order to be God's chosen, holy, and beloved people. That's not what it says. In fact, if that were true, then you'd have no need to forgive each other or show humility or meekness or patience. There's no need for that. That's not what it says, though, right? People that are so upset about hypocrites in the church, look, they're the very ones who aren't willing to bear with one another and forgive as they've been forgiven. You notice that? Revelation often talks about the white robes of God's people that have been washed in the blood of Christ. Like that, that is, It's a crazy image because you think, well, it's going to be stained with blood, but the reality is, is that that blood washes everything else off and creates purity. This is a description of what, what we're just reading here. What you're putting on is a description of what that robe looks like. That's what Colossians 3 is talking about. It's encouraging his chosen, holy, and beloved people to actively put on and receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Verse 15. We got some scripture this morning. Verse 15. And let the peace, say peace. Peace. And let the peace of Christ rule, say rule. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body the body of Christ, and be thankful. Say thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it happen. It means he's trying to make it happen. The only thing in the way of that happening is you. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms like Psalm 90 and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So three quick ways that we are to live in this world, but not of this world. And I'm going to close with these three ways. First, look to Jesus and live with heavenly orientation. 
Look to Jesus and live with heavenly orientation. Look, we live in an anxiety-ridden world. But often our anxiety simply, it's just simply our flesh not letting God be God. Right? Like if you're oriented towards this world, then you're going to be basically looking at life that doesn't include God. Your future is devoid of God being in it. You're thinking it's all up to me, and it's all up to, like, my sin, and I'm just kind of over here, and God's over there, and I'm alone, and so here I am, and, like, this is just a fearful, panicky state of just, blah, right? But it's, this is not the way that we're to be oriented. We're not to stare at our sin and go, God, I'm trying to not do that, but I keep doing it because I can't get away from it because sometimes it looks really good, and then I'm like, oh, I can't believe I did that, and then I'm like ashamed, and I'm still in it. God is saying, Jesus is saying, this word is saying, reorient yourself, repent, and return because I'm good. We get so caught up looking at our sin that we don't even realize that he's the one that pulls us out of it. We're trying to get out of it on our own. And most of the time we're doing that because we want to be prideful that we got it out. We fixed ourselves, which is just a cycle of sin. It's just pride, shame, spectrum, just this whole thing. He's saying get out of that mess, right? Like, and when we do that, like worry, this is, this is the, the worry is often the symptom of our desire to control the world around us. It's often the symptom of a heart that's fixated on the things of the world rather than the sovereign love of a gracious God. When we do that, we're literally not letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. What happens then is we become fearful and panicked, and we envision a future again, this devoid of God. And those what-ifs just take over, right? And we lose sight then of our calling, and we lose sight of our mission, and that's when the church's conversations become more about all the bad people and all the problems in the world rather than the glorious, all-sufficient love and grace of a good God whose kingdom is expanding and growing and he's in control of it all and he's got you and he's got this. The one who actually knows what he's doing, the one who holds the victory and cares for you more than you can fathom, which leads me to the second way that we're called to live in this world but not of this world. Number two, live in unified gospel community. You are called in one body. It's the body of Christ, the body of believers. This is what the local church is. It's a people set apart and founded upon the rich word of God. A people who admonish and encourage each other with the truth. That's who the local church is. Look, if you're not in gospel community, you need to hear this. If you're not in gospel community, none of what we just read is going to make any sense. Because this letter was written to a local church. Look, you might say, well, I'm an evangelist, right? I'm taking the gospel to the lost. I get that. Trust me, I get that. I love, like, my heart breaks for the lost. God's heart breaks for the lost. I get it. I'm not saying check out from those who don't know Jesus. But if your primary community is lost people, then you're fooling yourself if you think that you're having more influence on them than they're having on you. Some of y'all didn't get that. If your primary community is lost people that don't know Jesus as Lord, then you're fooling yourself if you think you're having more influence on them than they're having on you. I'm not saying don't hang out with people who don't know Jesus. In fact, I'm saying do it. I'm saying invite them into a community, though, that does know and love Jesus. 
Jesus made it clear that our most effective discipleship-making strategy would be our unity, our love for one another. Like Colossians through that entire thing, it makes no sense if you don't live in a community of believers. That's how the world would know that Jesus is who he says he is. In John 13, he told us that the world will know we are his disciples by our love for one another. See, gospel community isn't about hiding from the world. It's about sharing life in Christ with each other and the world and welcoming them into this thing. It's like the Trinity is community. That's, Jesus is like, hey, let's bring them into it. And the Father and Son, the Father and the Holy Spirit are like, yeah, go do it. And so he comes down and he's like, come on, guys. And then he brings us into fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are, it's almost as though we were like immersed or baptized into it or something. Go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is church, right? Where am I on my notes? I don't even know. i got to wrap this thing up. <laughs> the, yeah, number three. <laughs> um, so, look, I, I, again, like I, people, I, I get it, like, if you're not in gospel community yourself, it's going to be difficult to invite others into it. it. It just is. And often people are apprehensive about really engaging in community with, with other people because they know, especially if you've been in church and you've got church hurt, right? Or you've been discouraged by people in the church. Like, it can, you can have that apprehension, almost like the woman at the well that's like, ooh, I got all kinds of ideas about who that man is. This is why we're not oriented, though, towards the church. We're oriented towards God. Right? Like, praise God for our church, but she is not God. She will fail you because people will fail you. Praise God for so many comments and encouraging people. You know, people get on there like, you know, listen to this sermon. My church is great. I love my church. Guys, shout it from the rooftops. Praise God. I love it. Like, invite people to join us. But don't worship the church. Know that you are called to offer her grace because you can't idolize the church. Did you know that? And whatever you idolize, you will eventually demonize. The church is filled with fallen people who need forgiveness. And so do you. This is how we demonstrate grace to the world, not by being perfect, but by showing grace and mercy to one another. This is what the local church is to be. What sets us apart in this world isn't that our church is awesome. What sets you apart is that Jesus is awesome and our church adores him. That's the kind of community that we're building here. That's the kind of disciple-making, kingdom-advancing machine that the Holy Spirit is breathing on here at Risen Church. And I love it. I love it because I know that people, when they plug in here, they're going to get pointed to Jesus. Which leads me to the third way that we live in the world but not of the world. Last way, we don't just look to Jesus, we point to Jesus. You see, this is what happens when we're encountered by Jesus. We want everybody to see what we see and know what we know. When we experience life in Christ the risen Lord, we share life in Christ our risen Lord with each other and our city. Like suddenly that unfaithful woman at the well that we were talking about before, all of that shame and insecurity just disappears. Like suddenly she went from ashamed, isolated, and alone to introducing the very people she was avoiding to Jesus. Like next thing you know, she's found herself surrounded by people who've tasted the same living water that she has in Christ. All of a sudden, 
And now I don't doubt that later she had struggles with that shame. Like you can bet that that stuff kept creeping up. But you know what? She now has a community who can point her to the love of God in Christ Jesus and remind her of who she is. She's not alone. And she went from an unfaithful prostitute in an unfaithful society to a faith-filled, chosen, holy, and beloved bride surrounded by faithful believers, all because of one encounter in the heat of the day. This is what happens when we come to Jesus and drink of the all-satisfying love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.